Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Society 2.0. I am your host, Bob Luttenbach. It's good to be back. Let's get some housekeeping out of the way, shall we? If you're looking to reach out to me, um, and I'm always looking to hear from you, you can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at SocietyWire, or send me all of your hate mail or love mail at bob at SocietyWire.net. Hope everyone's having a great week. I'm pretty excited about our guest today. We have Julian Harris, Director of AI Research over at Cognition X in the UK. It was a brilliant conversation, not on my part, but on Julian's part. And I have a lot of links to share with you in the show notes, so please do check them out. Some of them are super impressive, like uh, Replica AI and... Uh, Soul Machine. You got to check out Soul Machine and their baby X. Uh, it's pretty funky. And you'll hear more as you hear Julian talk about it. But it's all very cool tech. You're going to hear us dig into the weeds a little bit about the different technologies. But bear with us because there's some interesting tidbits in there. Julian is a genius when it comes to artificial intelligence and chatbots. So you're going to want to hear everything he has to say. And you're definitely going to want to try to get to their COGX conference next year, or this year, not next year. What am I thinking? It's uh, over in the UK, like I said, in London. And I think they're actually going to make it uh, like four days this year. And he's provided us a code, which will be in the show notes for folks to sign up on or sign up for. So do check that out. So we cover a lot in this episode. We talk about chatbots. We talk about chatbots. Did I say chatbots? No, chatbots. Chatbots. We talk about really cool technology that Julian's getting involved with either hands-on or he just, the guy knows everyone. It's amazing. He was able to rattle off names, rattle off companies, rattle off technologies that they're providing. He's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. But before we get started, we're going to turn to the news desk and ask Bob, what's the current news in AI? Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, you're looking good today, too. Looking pretty, uh, pretty spiffy. So the current news is AI helps diagnose depression three months earlier than health services by analyzing Facebook posts. You can find this on independent.co.uk. Again, independent. .co.uk. So the article goes on to say an artificial intelligence program trained to scour Facebook posts for linguistic red flags, and that is in quotes, which could be a sign of depression, identified the condition up to three months earlier, earlier than health services a U.S. study has found. In earlier tests, the machine learning algorithm performed as well as existing screening questionnaires, which are used to identify depression but it has the advantage of being able to run unobtrusively in the background. It's pretty cool, actually. These early warning signs, and the early warning signs are post online, include mentions of loneliness or isolation, such as words like alone or ugh or tears, as well as the timing and length of the post. Other telltale clues include an increase in the use of first-person pro pronouns like I and me, which suggests a preoccupation of oneself. So what it says here also is depression really changes people's use of social media, 
in a way that something like skin disease or diabetes doesn't. This is a really interesting article. Being able to leverage technology like AI, machine learning specifically, to help diagnose depression. There was an article I read way back, and I'm trying to remember, like how we could leverage voice AIs like an Alexa or a Google Home to also interact with people to try to track depression, make like have an interaction with them. There's a chatbot uh, that actually this is hilarious. That this is uh, I don't know why I'm just thinking about this now. But we talked when I talked to Julian. There's a chatbot called Replica.ai, and that is an AI that you can talk to, and it's a pretty amazing. You need to check this out. You can have this long conversation with this chatbot, and there is no person behind it. There's no man behind the green curtain. There, it's literally a, a chatbot that is is analyzing how you interact with it and responding in kind. And it is, it's so good, it's creepy. But it's used to help understand or make people feel better. So you can say in the beginning, hey, I need help with depression or feeling lonely. And it'll start the conversation in that way for you to start kick, basically kickstart the conversation. So it's really cool. I'll have it in the show notes. Definitely check it out. It, it's, again, you know, mental health issues are, are a huge problem in our country, around the world, really. But we, you know, people are starting to talk more and more about them. Anxiety, uh, PTSD, panic attacks. These are all things that affect more people than you know. Depression. And people walk around in, in quiet agony with suffering from these things. I myself have had uh, panic attacks in, in the past. They, are, they can be pretty darn debilitating, let me tell you. And there's, there's not enough conversation about it, I, although there's a ton more. And there's, the stigma is, is going away about it. But uh, if they can create technology to help people with this stuff, to help people feel like they have a person, not a person, uh, a system that they can talk to, to calm them down, to make them feel better. Uh, loneliness is, is something that's, it's out there, not just for people suffering from depression or from panic or anxiety, but, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we, we have a lot of elderly people and that is going to double and even quadruple for certain elderly age groups. Suffice it to say, there's going to be a lot of old people, okay? And one day you'll be one of them. So if, and in and, and some cases, you're going to be lonely. And to have the ability to interact with something that makes you feel uh, like you have companionship, as well as the benefits of being able to track down, or not track down, but really help people who, who might actually be on the, on the ba- really bad end of depression where they're contemplating hurting themselves. So this, to me, this is all good. I, I know there's the privacy issues and there's the creepiness factor that's always out there when you're talking to a system and revealing personal things about yourself. But as long as it's an opt-in and people are, are okay with it, you know, anything we can do to help, just help people, I think that's a good thing. So enough of me about the soapbox, but Bob, back to you. That's the news from the news desk. Well, thank you, Bob. That was a really interesting article. I could see you were pretty passionate about that as well. So as you'll see, when we talk to Julian, we actually bring up that technology, the Replica AI, and, he, and there's a bunch of other ones that we talk about as well. And I don't want to give it all away right now. I want you to hear the conversation because, again, it's very compelling. Julian is very knowledgeable. 
and very passionate about the work that he does with Cognition X and the partnerships that he has with other people as well. So without further ado, let's dive right into the interview with Julian. Like I say, I want to welcome Julian Harris, head of AI technology research at Cognition X in the UK. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Oh, I appreciate you making the time to to uh, talk to everyone today. You know, I was doing some research on your background before we talked, and you've had a, a really interesting history of where you used to work and where you are now. Can you tell us how you, you know a little bit of a story and, and the road to to how you got to Cognition X? Sure. So, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have been working with internet technology since the early 90s, which was when it started sort of entering the mainstream consciousness, really. Uh, and so I've always, as a career, as a programmer, I have always been really interested in marrying technology with people. And to that end, I've been very interested in user experience or usability and designing systems that people love. And there's been some really influential people in, in my world that really got me interested in this, such as Jakob Nielsen and um, and Bruce Tognazzini and um, Jared Spool and these guys from the UX with the user experience point of view. So I've always been interested in that design part, not just visual, but the interaction part. So funnily enough, you know, I've actually almost almost I've completely avoided data <laughs> in my career. I've always been I just, I've never really, SQL queries have never really turned me on. So what's interesting, though, is that um, in my journey, and it's involved a number of roles, increasingly sort of technology leadership and working with uh, various, you know, delivery approaches in various parts of the world, you know. I was at, very privileged to be at Google for about seven and a half years, where I played a number of technical product roles, um, learning about you know, engineering product and operational excellence, working with some of the greatest minds in the world, which is immensely exciting. Yeah, that has to be very exciting. Um, yeah, I, I was very privileged. And this is where I, was where I implemented my second AI project, I guess, where we had a problem that was a big data problem, like how do you manage things at a huge scale? And so I had a, you know, I was product manager for some of those, those solutions. What was interesting, though, therefore, was, you know, starting to see this, this idea of, of um, how to become more intelligent or how to apply intelligence more effectively, seeing the emergence of what I'd call cheap intelligence. I think, and then I took some time in UK government, which is tremendously fulfilling, learning about how the public sector works and making a meaningful impact. You know, like I designed the UK's first uh, Alexis, UK government's first Alexis skill, uh, oh, wow. which was really interesting. Uh, back in 2016, it's open source. It's in GitHub. You're going to look at it. It's not very interesting now. But the interesting part was to me the journey experientially. Like, what does conversation design mean? Voice is really hard because you have so little to go with. The user doesn't have things to guide what is acceptable or understandable. So I really learned a lot about how hard that can be quite early on in the journey of voice. So then I got invited to join Cognition X, which is a startup that's in a nutshell, helping adopt, accelerate the adoption, helping accelerate the adoption of AI responsibly. And so our view is, we're, is to help uh, connect people and provide a community uh, that is 
appropriate for them and a language that makes sense for them. So in that space, what has really got me excited, moving from emerging technology, which the space I was using in the U- in the UK government, into AI, was that when I suddenly saw some progress, some really substantial progress, in how you do use speech and voice and text as part of the experience. It's the most natural thing. And I think I'll steal some quotes from William Tunstall Pedro, who is is a creative of Alexa um, and is actually an advisor to Cognition X. He was saying that the way we communicate is the most natural way that we can, uh, that's not phrasing it very well, that our voice is the most natural way of communicating. And so if you have an interface that can understand that, you don't need to learn anything new. You just say what you want. And I like that. I think it's really interesting because as a designer, as a front-end user experience designer, it's the, the challenge is to how to make things easy to use, to make things easier to do right than to do wrong. But of course, the challenge then becomes when you say stuff and there's no guideposts, how do you know what you say is going to be understood? And one of the main challenges in voice today is that you may have a system that can understand what you intended to do, but you still then have to do it. So in the enterprise, you see a lot of people saying, we're providing a natural language interface to your data and your enterprise. But that actually is only part of the story. You need to still figure out a way of taking an intended request and turning that into something that actually works. Like, are we on track for sales this quarter? You need to have a function that actually does that query. It's all very good to be able to understand that's what you wanted. Yeah. So anyway, the, it, the rent. Yeah, sorry. No, I was going to yep. say it's interesting that you use that example, and you're spot on with this. Is it's from a user experience? I'm able to ask a simple question like that, Alexa. What's are we on target for sales for next quarter? But from a back end experience, I'm still trying to parse out. Okay, what was the intent? I mean, in, in the NLU and the NLP, well, the NLP will do that. They'll figure out the intent if, as a developer, you've You've entered that phrase as a possible way to ask a question, and it was able to understand the question because dialect has plays a role, and um, there's different ways to say the same thing in different regions, just in the U.S., for instance. But then I then have to say, okay, what's the current quarter? So there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the background to make it feel as natural as possible to the user. It's not. I said it, it knew what I meant, and it went and did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'll steal a great quote or at least an idea from an excellent book by Bruce Tognazzini. It was called Tog on Software Design. And it's one of the most interesting books, and I think it's still quite relevant in terms of what it means to design for people. Another great one, of course, for anyone who's curious, is Don Norman's book, The Design of Everyday Things, which is an absolute classic if you want to build empathy for, for users. But basically, he said that software is an illusion. It is a the impression of experience that's smooth um, is often an in, immensely complex and always has been. Anyone who's listening who's done drag and drop on a on a traditional desktop computer will know how insanely difficult it is to get that right because of all the states that can occur. And voice just makes that more complex. One of the things that we've done this last year, one of the reports we're preparing, 
is a landscape primer on natural language processing analysis. Generation is a separate thing we're focusing on. So this is from the top level. The question is, what's the difference when designing a system that can understand what people have said in a conversation to a normal web experience or a normal web application or a normal application of any kind, really? The answer is, well, if you, t- you start off, you think about, you go to a web page on a, a bank and you want the balance. So you think, I want the balance. So you look on the page and you go, here's a button that says, show me balance. You click on the button, you get the balance. This from a software is not that hard. It's actually really straightforward. There's a lot of stuff that might go on to figure out what the balance is. But fundamentally, the intended action is pretty clear. Turn that around to a space that we've been working on recently around understanding the intended action of a conversation between two people. Well, it's a completely different story. Can you hear me okay? Now, now I can. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, the, the Bluetooth just decided to turn off for some reason. No, it actually sounds good. You're fine. Good, good. So, so then, so you, the, the, the steps from a conversation to this, the predicted action is, is very different. And this complexity is, is vastly, you know, historically been essentially insurmountable, which is why it's not being done. So to really go back and answer the question you asked before, uh, what's got me excited is that I love communicating and I love writing and I love designing systems and I like strategy and the future. To bring it all together, suddenly you've got technology that really has only been possible in many cases in the last, you know, you'll say four to six years, that's made it possible to break through this. And the, this part is um, taking what someone says, I have an audio recording, and turning that into what they're going to do. And so we have this conceptual architecture we've put together that as far as I'm aware is, is unique. It basically looks at all the pieces that, are, that you need to put together to take a spoken conversation between two people and figure out the predicted action. Now, this isn't to say this doesn't exist anywhere in lots of different software, but what's interesting is that you know, part of this report is actually explaining all of these pieces so that someone goes, oh, I see, there's like, there's 11 pieces and <clears throat> this is the flow and here are some products that do it. And so if I'm going to create a system that does this myself in my enterprise space, then this is a starting point that you can use as a template to understand how you can do this effectively yourself, plus answering on the way the buy-build-partner conversation. Like, okay, there's products in this space that's really mature. Take, for example, speech-to-text. Really, 2018 was the year of speech-to-text. It's just fallen through the floor in terms of cost. We've got amazing open-source technology like DeepSpeech, and now there's Facebook WaveLetter++. So there's some really interesting stuff that's come through has essentially made the, the ability to take part of this journey, uh, make it quite scalable and cost-effective. And it really was only last year that this was possible. Now, I'm not sure if you experienced this yourself, Bob, but when we did COGX 17, we transcribed all the video, and it was an absolute nightmare. We tried various automation tools to transcribe it, and they just weren't good enough. They were just... Hilarious. It was a comedy act of errors and confusion. It was, you know, just not practical. And it took us weeks. Fast forward to 2018, and, you know, transcriptions built into Google's, I mean, to YouTube now, and the transcripts are pretty good. 
<clears throat> and where we want to do something different, there are other tools like Descript that use Google's API as well. Now, Google's not the only one. There's actually three or four exceptionally good companies now that provide, you know, good enough audio, speech to text, taking a recording of someone and turning that into words that people understand that actually are fair representation. You know, that, that's essentially, in my mind, a solved problem. And so if you look at the conceptual architecture, that's a piece we would say, don't try and solve this yourself. And don't, you know, focus on the vendors that can do this without really an awful lot of messing around. Because out of the box, there's three, four vendors now that where you just almost need to do nothing. You just, you give it audio and then you get text at the end and the text is incredibly accurate. Um, I just, and it just gets better. So this is really like a solved problem. Yeah, no, it's funny you bring up the the speech to text, even for podcasts. Now there's tools out there like Rev, where you pay pennies on the on the on the minute, really, and they transcribe your entire podcast. And it yeah. does a pretty darn good job, I have to say. I mean, I've been very impressed. And the cost is ridiculously cheap versus having somebody, you know, type it. I mean, there, there's there was a whole job segment of of medical transcriptionists where mm. their job was to take the notes that a doctor says into a recording and then transcribe them into the record. And now yeah. that can all go away with tools like that, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, th that's an exciting. And I guess you know, whenever people talk about jobs, I always, I think there's this really interesting thing that I think I get most excited about is if we think about where AI comes in to help, it's to... The way I like to describe it is to elevate people from the mundane. So why don't you have transcribers who do that? And you've got, you know, the Alexa had a new um, service for healthcare or terminology. So this is going to be much easier to do. This isn't very interesting work. So those people can start doing something more effective. And that's that in itself brings up interesting ethical questions about will there be enough jobs? Such the fact what I like focusing on in this space is what I call um, the uh, the skills crisis in another way, which is, well, I'll start the story off actually with um, the chief economist of Google, Hal Varian. He created a rule called Varian's Rule, which said that if you want to see how people behave in the future, look at how the wealthy behave today. And they have concierges and they have coaches and they have, and they have all of these things that they're allowed to delegate in their lives. And so with that in mind, you know, the personalized experience is very hard. And so if you want to help people develop at scale, you, you need tools that work at scale. A really concrete example of this was a great report that I listened to recently from Cambridge University uh, Linguistics and Language Sciences Department. They did a, a long, longitudinal study on children and language development over four years, or four to six years. Now, two things are interesting from there, and I'll get back to why this is relevant for us in a sec. The one thing was that no matter where you are in your skill development at school from about four, your, your abilities will progress. No matter what your capabilities are, they do progress, so you get better every year. What seems not to change is your relative ranking or your relative ability against your, your classmates. So if you're if you're the very most advanced, precocious, articulate communicator at four, uh, you're going to be almost very reliably two to three years ahead of the least, the lowest performer throughout your school. Um, so this was interesting in itself, some good science. 
The problem that it raises is, well, how do you bridge the gap? And this is where it gets really tricky because, you know, and I love the quote that they brought up in the report, which was, um, you know, if you're going to learn a new language, you don't take six evening classes and then you're done. It's many hours of work over years. So this isn't something that can be solved easily. It's a skills crisis because what you really need is about half of that class to have individualized attention at, at scale. And there's no way that's ever going to be solved for the general population um, by real people. And so to me, this is a good example of where the most exciting opportunities in the future of work and how AI and speech for text is going to make a big positive difference is how people can design systems that have natural conversation that can help them in ways that were really only available to the very rich today. Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see how that progresses because of what you said earlier that, you know, natural language communication in the digital space has a lot of challenges. We've, we've evolved to be able to communicate with each other over thousands of years of understanding facial expressions and, you know, tribal nuances with between each other and just being able to adapt and develop around each other. And so I can tell if someone's sad by how they look, not just what they say or how they, how they're standing, um, just their mannerisms where, and so there's that context that without computer vision, a voice assistant wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up on. And so the complexities that you talked about earlier, it really means that, you know, when you build natural language processing engines, you need linguists, you need behavioral uh, disciplines, you need the technology disciplines. It's a cross-discipline system that needs to be created. It's not a bunch of programmers sitting in a room like, like back in the 90s where you just write some prescriptive algorithm to make something work. And if you didn't do, if you didn't fit in those guide rails, it was an exception. And mm. with the new world, everything is an exception <laughs> because it, it, different people interact different ways. Shy people are different than extroverts. It's like you said, if I'm the precocious person at four, I will probably be that for quite some time, if not my whole life, and I will be ahead of the rest of the class. But the way I am going to interact with you might seem hyper and, and almost stressful versus someone much more calm. So how do you train? Um, and I like a term that you brought up before we were talking offline, and you've mentioned this in some of your writings, digital beings. How do you train the digital beings to understand the difference between that's just the normal state for Joe and that's just the normal state for Mary. Now you need to figure that out and use that when you're interacting with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You brought up a couple of really interesting points. I think the first one is about what does a successful team look like? Now you talked about programmers in the 90s and yeah, I've, I've been there. I know that what that was like. The reality is even today or even in the last year or in the last maybe even 10 years, a successful team has been a mix, hasn't it? It's been a mix of the developer and then the, the other disciplines have been there for some time. You've got the designers and user experience people and researchers. So that, that mix has been there. So I think this is one of the things I like to try and underscore is that when we're talking about this new frontier, um, I don't, there are some, there are definitely new, I think also for the kinds of problems that lots of people are trying to solve, those the the difference between the skills they have now and what they need in many many cases is actually 
only an increment over what they what they need um, for for the voice and speech text space. So, for example, if you're a user experience designer, you know it's a really good thing to understand conversational design, and it's particularly valuable valuable to understand and appreciate how much overlap there is because you still have a lot of things that are the same. So anyone who's listening who's interested in or experienced in traditional or conventional user experience design, I would say, you know, it's there is a lot of great stuff that can help you understand really only the differences between what you're doing and what's new. For example, um, there's a, a Kathy Pearl has written a great book on voice user interfaces, which has some brilliant nuggets around some of the things you need to be aware of. You're right, though, that when you're starting to get more advanced spaces, understanding of language and communication is incredibly valuable. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting also is that you you probably have people in your team already who actually have some training. It's amazing how many people, like we have two linguists on our team, and, you know, that's they weren't, they weren't hired to be linguists. It's people who have been interested in this stuff who can suddenly br- blow the dust off their skills and go, wow, you know, this is all really relevant and super hot. And so we do, to really underscore your point, see a movement where the focus is on written or textual or spoken communication. Um, helpfully as well is that your traditional user experience designers have an awful lot of tools they can reuse around testing and design. And the exciting thing is to go, you know, 90% of my process is the same. And there's some changes in terms of how you do, you know, Wizard of Oz testing and things. And there's some great examples of how to do that. So the teams are there. Now, you, you then talked about the digital being stuff. And I think the your question of how do you know or how does the system know that this is normal behavior for Joe Yusuf? So this is, to me, it's it's really interesting seeing how technology is moving in that direction. I'll start off by saying that we have this this um, cognition checks, we have this primer at for plain English overview of the landscape of chatbots, when we call it the, the business of natural language computing. And one of the pictures, and you can get this picture free from our sample of this, is an illustration of the difference between what I call, what is actually generally called task bots. So this is like traditional software. This is software that you have a task and you, your design is to optimize getting that task as efficiently and as effectively as possible while keeping the user satisfied as a standard user experience framework. So task bots are like, I want to order some pizza. I want to check my bank balance. I want to, you know, blah, these kinds of tasks, right? On the other end of the spectrum, which is where the digital being stuff gets quite interesting, but is, is social bots. And these are almost like going back to the roots of chatbots back in the 1960s with Eliza. These are, these are, this is software that you have a conversation with. And the principle, the objective of this conversation is really about trust, intism, in, trust intimacy and companionship over a long period of time. Not necessarily, I want to get that pizza. And the exciting thing here is what's happening today. So the frontier of this, you can break up the space into three categories. On one end of the spectrum, you've got this uh, a rule-based approach for chatbots, for these social bots. So Mitsuku is a good example. It's owned by Pandora bots, written by basically one guy, Steve Wurzwick. Over about 11 years, he's built this 
this really, really comprehensive set of rules. If this, then that. It has some more intelligence around patterns and some things, to be fair, around some common sense things. But essentially, he would be happy if I called it rule-based. And his argument is what you said before, is like everything's an exception. And the everything is an exception is really an approach that you take if you think, well, the only way I can do it is by writing what those exceptions are, which is the rule-based approach. So this is one approach. Then you get this other approach, which is really, really, really popular at the moment, which is what I'd call example-based. So you take lots of examples of things, and then you say, when they say, I'm going to be late, that means late check-in. If it says, the plane's arriving late, that means late check-in. If you say, I can't find the hotel, or I'm on the wrong part of town, that also means a late hotel check-in. And as you probably have experienced, you know, there's as a rule, there's probably a thousand different ways you can s- express the intended action of any one thing. So this is the the machine learning, deep learning space. This is where you take all these examples and then it does clever things to that weren't really possible, you know, even six years ago, to be able to do that cost effectively. So that's that's an interesting area. And one example of that, the most ex- most advanced example I've seen of that is what Microsoft's been doing, mostly in Asia, with this chatbot they created called Showice. It's spelled in English X-I-A-O-I-C-E. Um, and hundreds of millions of people in Asia are using Showice as a companion. 25% of them at one point or another said, I love you. I mean, this is like intimacy wow. at scale, right? And this is jaw-dropping, and yet in the Western world, very few people know anything about it because most of it's in Chinese. (laughs) It's really hard to find, but I have found it, and it's incredible. And they have an English version called Zoe, so those who are listening, check out Zoe.ai, and in particular, try the Skype voice version, which has not even been, they did a a soft launch, but they're not promoting it. And you have a conversation with Zoe. If you look on my Medium post, you have a, see a, a recording I had with Zoe, and she can rap and have a conversation about, you know, you know, different things. It's um, that's deep learning. So they are able to have what is essentially a pretty coherent conversation um, from literally trillions of conversations. So they've got crazy numbers of people, and they get this and they see the patterns at scale. And it's really exciting. So I got a couple of Medium posts that share the very latest stuff I could find on that, you know, their announcement of Showice version six um, in September last year and um, some of their conceptual architect, I mean, some of the, you know, machine learning that they employ, like the specific mechanisms they use. So sidebar is nothing particularly revolutionary. They're just using the building blocks that you would expect as a data scientist or a machine learning engineer. So that's that's deep learning or machine learning, um, which is in this point more or less the same thing, example-based systems and example-based intelligence. Then the third that gets really interesting is what I call biomimicry, which is not just my term, it's what I like to call that space, but is also considered like um, simulation, simulations of things. And that, that gets quite interesting because this the premise of, of biomimicry is that you say, if we really want intelligence, let's copy what has so far the only example of what really works, which is the human brain. And so that's where we get Companies like Soul Machines, who, as far as I can tell, have a singular advantage against anyone else in having built a digital nervous system. And so those who are curious, Baby X is their research platform that is giving their characters astonishing levels of realism. 
Um, so Dr. Mark Sega is the creator of BaileyX and is and co-founder of Soul Machines, actually here in Auckland where I am at the moment. And Auckland, New Zealand. So the what's this, what's interesting is that in terms of pedigree, he's won two Academy Awards on um, animation technology. Um, you know, this guy, you know, we're talking Avatar, Hong Kong, uh, so King Kong, Avatar, uh, and you know, he's so he's been involved. So some with small all- independent movies. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, worked in in LA for many years. I'm um, you know also Weta Digital, obviously Lord of the Rings and so like you know there's, there's some pretty um, you know some pretty influential and ultra realistic um, experiences there. And so if you look at the characteristics of what Soul Machines are doing, you see um, individual hair follicles modelled. So you look at Baby X's eyebrows and each hair is there. You see the natural skin imperfections of a of of a real skin. And most interestingly to me is they've solved the eye problem, which is if you look at most 3D avatars, they look like zombies or at best slightly stoned. And this is because getting the eye optics is incredibly hard uh, because there's a lot going on. The way the light bounces around and the surface and such like. And of course, the way that that's been solved with song machines is that they literally emulate the eye. They have all of the pieces together and it's just quite simply jaw-dropping the hmm. level of detail. So we have these three ways that intelligence is being emulated. We've got rule-based, example-based, or machine learning, and then we've got biomimicry. And they all have different approaches. And the thing is that each has you know, different problems. So when you take rule-based, the question is then everything's a rule, and so to scale, how do you add, you know, have to add more rules? And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a big task. Machine learning is problematic because it's probabilistic. Um, and more to the point, it's based on the examples that you give it. So for it to learn new things is the challenge and for it to be coherent and, you know, requires an awful lot of thinking and, and uh, design. Now, these problems, I think, actually are, are being solved in very clever ways. Another really interesting example is Replica, Replica.ai. Uh, I've shared a transcript of a voice conversation I had with Replica just yesterday. And, you know, this is 25 minutes of a coherent conversation that, you know, is like, it's uh, quite astonishing how coherent that is with almost no memory and with a bunch of other things. So they have a, so Replica is another great example of, of, uh, of a machine learning intelligence in some way. Even Google duplex it, is really interesting. Yeah. So duplex is interesting too. Yeah, that's a great point. So that's, so there's two, so duplex is great and everyone knows it in the moment it hit with Google's brand, everyone knew about it. Another example in that space that's also, I think pretty astonishing is um, a company called Voca. Voca.ai, an Israeli company, uh, you see their demos and they have similar levels of realism in the, in the voice engagement. And I had a conversation with the CEO, um, Ainav Itamar, I hope I pronounced that right. And so I'm convinced that this stuff's real and what they're doing is absolutely plausible because of his approach. And I can go into it more detail about what, I, what they're doing that makes that possible. Um, but the headline there is that the way that this stuff is becoming intelligent is people are navigating through the world, the infinite world of possibility of how someone, um, how you can design a realistic or human-like experience. And sometimes they discover a, a rich seam of, of optimization or kind of shortcuts that gives really plausible intelligence for specific situations, you know, a narrow channel. Um, which which is very interesting. So in the case of Replica, 
one of the ways I think, I don't know, I really don't know, but one of the ways that I think they get away with a lot of plausible engagement is that it kind of ignores quite a lot of what you say. <laughs> um, and that works because people kind of ignore what other people say sometimes. <laughs> you have a conversation and someone essentially doesn't respond and just says something else, it's kind of okay. Um, whereas a lot of other chatbots in that space try and answer everything, and even when they don't understand, and then it's laughable and kind of disruptive and jarring. So their little optimization is, hey, this is actually human-like. It's kind of okay that they don't necessarily always respond. And yeah, like say a, something. a lot of our conversation, it's, it's filler words. There's a lot of ums yeah. and ahs and it's and thes and uh and so it they're not the the subject the verb or the object of of the conversation and so if they're able to figure out a way to throw away the extraneous data and focus on what's important that i guess, I guess that would save a lot of time too <laughs> you know what i mean trying to figure out every little word versus i'm going to focus on the key points based on millions of conversations that i've had in the past and most likely I don't know if you're a fan of, you watch Westworld at all? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, if you saw the end there uh, of last season, and I'm, this is a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched it, so I'm, I'm giving you a heads up, that you know, basically all of human interaction is about 10,000 lines of code. You know, <laughs> because it, they, he, they tried to do so much and they realized we didn't need to. It's pretty much just this. This is how they act, period. Well, I mean, that's an interesting approach. It's kind of what Soul Machines are trying to do as I've seen it, is they're saying we're going to get all of this in physics, we call it emergent behavior, behavior that's come and manifests in a way that's not predictable by creating these building blocks, biological building blocks and saying if we create, you know, a thalamus and we create a ganglia and we create, you know, a, um, um, a brainstem and we connect, you know, and, and based on our neuroscience understanding, we see how they communicate. We hope to see similar kinds of behavior that emerge from it. So I think that's kind of the idea is that rather than so from first principles, from biology, you say create that um, that being from from that from those first principles. Uh, I mean, Westworld's an interesting one because, yeah, it's um, in many respects, actually a nice observation on Westworld is the virtual space for Westworld is vastly more progressed than the robotics world. So if anyone asks, you know, how far away are we from Westworld? I think you do need to slice it into virtual Westworlds are totally plausible within, you know, 10 to 20 years. But robotics, God knows. I mean, it's just so difficult to get that stuff realistic. It's very, very hard. It's just a frontier that is you know, still really early days to get all of that stuff working smoothly. Um, so, yeah, the – no, I forgot what you said before. Um, which one was something else? No, that was really it. We were just talking about the the different ways that people interact. And that- – Ah, uh, yeah, I remember now. I remember now. Yeah, so you're talking about the ambiguity, and that is, to be honest, the crux of the challenge of intelligence is to is is to what is what to remember and what to focus on. And you know, this is really the challenge. If I look at all the things that make intelligence that I've seen, the one that is the most hard to do is 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 is, is memory, is understanding what's being talked about and that you mentioned context and it's knowing what that context is. And there are various approaches that are being taken. Um, it's uh, quite a journey, you know, working on this, this theme of digital beings because I've been looking at the most, most recent research papers on, on, uh, you know, intelligence and there are papers on 
concepts. So teaching a, a system to learn a new concept. So in the, the paper that I was reading recently on this, I have a link to it in my recent tweet, where it sort of teaches the system something more than just you know recognizing patterns, but something slightly more advanced. Uh, I can't really do it justice, but it talks about learning about the concept of a triangle and the concept of a square that looks very pattern-based, but it's like the next level. Uh, the argument is that the ability for a system to cognify, using um, Kevin Kelly's word, to cognify, that is to add intelligence to the, you know, in a, a space, you need the system to be able to learn new concepts. So that's 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 really interesting and interesting to see, you know, what is the very latest research in the space and where that will go. Yeah, and it's also about but you said memory. So when kind of I'll tie a couple things back. So we talked about people using it for companionship and folks that said I I have loved you to that or I love you to the chatbot. And I think there's going to be a there's going to be a, a large part of future AI companionship pieces that fit into the world because people are lonely and if i can find someone that i can some something and i say someone but the, the ai that it can identify with me and understands me and commute it, it's uh what was that movie is it called me um her. yeah her i'm sorry her so it, it's very much like that where if, if it can get to know me and understand me and not so I don't have to repeat myself. It knows how I feel about something or 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 you know politics or world affairs or, or spaghetti or whatever. It knows me. Then it becomes like a friend. But understanding that memory part or getting that right and understanding new concepts at the same time is is definitely a challenge. I think we're I think we're probably pretty far away, not super far away, but that's a that's a huge leap, I think. From where we are today with Alexa, if you look at the crawl, walk, run, I say this all the time, we're still very much in the crawl stage of the voice interfaces, at least on the consumer side right now. Yeah, you know, so I think to recap, you're right. I mean, when I talk about, this is touching briefly on digital beings a bit, um, there's three kinds of skills that I see being developed in this space to make that possible. They're kind of different kinds of activities. We've got the companion which is about being a friend. And this is one area... Is that the social bot you talked about before too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So companionship is, I I mean, it's a cynical bumper sticker label, but but loneliness is a growth industry. And it's really, this idea of digital intimacy uh, is is growing. And the most striking thing that's demonstrated again and again and again about digital intimacy or digital companionship or digital beings that are companions, digital companions, is that people share more about their lives to these things, to the software, to these programs, than to other people. Yeah. So you know, if you if you this has happened again, and one recent example, the testimonials for those who are using Replica, one of the people said, actually as a co-founder, she said she saw the transcript that her friend wrote, and she looked at it and said. You told, you know, I learned these things from you. How come I didn't know these things of you as a good friend that you shared with this chatbot? 
Um, and it's the same thing. I mean, I remember, you know, um, well, it won't judge you. That's the, that's the one thing. It's, yeah, it's non-judgmental. Would, yeah. And that's exactly what Phil Libin says about this stuff is, um, who's a creative Evernote, um, you know, that the, it's the, it's a rare place where you get to have a conversation, an intimate conversation without judgment. Now here's the point around, you know, to bring Varian's law, rule back into it. Therapy is expensive. So you could say that you can have a non-judgmental conversation with a therapist. And, you know, some people are privileged enough to be able to say, yeah, I can invest in that. But most people can't. So what do you do? Right. And so this growth of well-being chatbots is explosive. We've got lots of different ones. We've got Wobot, Wiser, um, you know, Zenbot. Um, this just keeps going. And so some of them, what's going to happen is they're going to start specializing. So we have like companions, but some of them are going to move into literally, you know, therapy and coaching. Yeah. So Wiser has a hybrid approach where it's like you can chat but then we have a chat system with real coaches now to really underscore other people's sentiment on this i look at that and go i've got a chatbot that's neutral and i've got people that well whatever qualifiers they have are still people and do i really want to share these things with people i don't know and pay right, right. you know it's, it's cheaper but it's still like it's, I don't, why should I, and so I can't, you know, I got, was a subscription, but I was like, wait a second, I just noticed in myself how I was reacting in a, in this, in this same way that I've seen other people do, which is basically there are certain things that we trust people to do, but there's, there's certain things that have to happen before that trust is, is given to people. The and trust just, is extended and earned. Um, yeah. I do see that that's a little generational though. I find that younger generations are much more trusting when it comes to privacy and openness on online, whereas you and I grew up in a space before it existed, and then suddenly it was there, and we've seen the, the, the troubles with, once it's there, it's, it lives forever, and I, I just see a difference with younger people and their ability to trust the system, quote-unquote. Um, That's fair. I mean, so, um, yeah, I had actually say my view is not scientific so i can't show studies and i agree with the, all either of the, is mine you know, yeah so i'm more yeah. anecdotal <laughs> so I, I i what what i'm seeing though is that um there's this so as part of this companionship what the, the driving forces um you know like for instance microsoft shall i the the, the name of the chatbot in in uh japan is called rena and it's it's very big and it is actually with younger people. Um, and so this is in that case as a counterpoint is, you know, a certain generation that is probably used to this technology and be exposed to it. They're still finding the, the value of talking to Rena very attractive. So, so we've got companionship and, and this is growing. Um, and, you know, we've got people saying from the replica testimony, like I miss talking to you and I want to talk to you. Um, and so most experiences today, particularly in the Western world, when working with voice interfaces or text interfaces are on the task side. And, you know, we're still in the wild west in terms of best practice. Uh, there's some good courses on that. Uh, Robocopy is a great one where you can learn about conversation design, robocopy.io. Um, that's a great, as far as I understand, the first academy for conversation design I, I know of. So there's, you said there's that was robocopy.ai? 
IO actually. IO. So Dutch company founder is Hans van Dam. So he's he's uh, launched this earlier this year to help people learn about this specifically, and he's brought brought in you know behavioral all this all the expertise that you talked about, behavioral science psychologists. He's used those contributors to design a course that takes into account behavioral science and the language components that are different. I'm encouraging to come up with specialist versions, one for product managers, one for UX designers, one for programmers and such like. I think that's where it'll probably go. Uh, but what's interesting is this, this companionship is in the social bot space. And so your experience with Alexa is one thing where it's, you know, we're talking about a mass market product that's supposed to be incredibly reliable for it to be trustworthy, for doing simple things. And, you know, I've got these devices around and, and when I ask Alexa to set a timer for something or add something to a shopping list, the, the breakthrough in the last few years has been that it does it pretty much all the time. And so they have to be careful about their strategy. They have to, they have to make sure that what they release is reliable, incredibly reliable at scale with tens of millions of families using it. So they have a challenge at mass market of being, being able to do that in a very visible space that, you know, if they, if they do mess up and it suddenly gets all confused, that trust vaporizes and suddenly you don't use it anymore and it's gone and, you know, the product could die at that. I guess what I'm justifying here is they're taking these baby steps towards improved um, uh, in, engagement. And you've probably seen the Alexa challenge, which is the academic research into what is essentially their social bot strategy. So they're getting these universities, inviting them to say, here is a framework that will allow you to have to get training data from millions of conversations uh, to design a, you know, in your challenges, which will be very well rewarded, is to to be able to hold a conversation about broadly anything but roughly news, politics, and movies or something um, with these three judges. So that's been going two years in a row, and the and uh, the, the winners. Have, I think the longest was maybe nine or 10 minutes or something like that before the judges said this is not a coherent or plausible conversation. So that, that, that is, that's them looking at this new way of engaging, which is you know, this trusted companion. Now, this is a battle. We've got Microsoft with Show Ice, and we've got Google with their duplex approach, and we've got Amazon with the Alexa challenge, all quite different approaches. The goal is to become the next operating system in the way that we would use Windows or Macs to, mostly Windows for a long time, to access information and services. The next frontier is the same thing in your home conversationally. And that the winner will be the one that designs a trustworthy platform that allows you to conveniently access what you want and also is a place that you can, you know, that you are comfortable sharing quite intimate parts of your life so that it can personalize that experience. So there's a race at the moment. All of them are trying to do this, and they're doing it in different ways. You get look at companies like Replica, and there's a really good chance that they'll probably get acquired by one of these big guys to be folded in so that they can have a trustworthy companion. Another company who's aspiring to do this is in the UK called Constellation AI. They're really interested in, a, in this vision of, a, of, a, of the intimate companion that can offer you advice. And as you all know from your background, the more data you get, the more personalized and more insightful the experience can be. And so that's, it's really a trust frontier. Yeah, no, It is totally. about how, how do you design a system that people trust to give everything? So interesting first signals, it turns out human nature trusts robots more than people in general anyway, yeah, <laughs> which is not, not physical robots, it's but it's chatbots. Yeah. 
yeah, that's counterintuitive, but again and again, I'm seeing the signal. So that's really interesting, and not an obstacle is actually supporting this. Then the question is, how do you then have a way of being able to make sure that that, that trust is not abused? And first and foremost, I think you need a system where they're very transparent about usage. Um, and it's not the click here and we'll use your you know, data for marketing products and services. So I think that's not really going to be acceptable. I think it needs to be a system you pay for and say, I get this value from this service and I know what's happening. Um, and when you talk about trust, and you've probably seen this, there is one clear transformational technology that's made that more possible, uh, which is blockchain. And yeah. blockchain really is about a, a architecture of trust. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I've been, when I was running Emerging Tech uh, in UK government, we did some experimentation with blockchain. So I understand where it is and what it does. And I don't really know how these things are going to fit together. But for those who are not familiar with the benefits of blockchain, the simple answer is blockchain allows two different entities or parties to come to an agreement on something, even if they don't trust each other. And this is really the first time humanity's ever experienced this in the history of man, that you can do this without a third party. So it's pretty transformational. And this means, if we were to think about where this is going, that you have a system where you have really a little bit like in Europe, you've got GDPR. It's kind of that, but on steroids, where it's like everything that this system knows of me is very much... And decentralized. And, and I can revoke it at any point. So that's a key thing, right? It's, I, I'm now concerned and I want to now withdraw access to these things and the system has a, a clear way of demonstrating that that's happened. So I don't know where this all goes, but fundamentally I think that where your own information and your experience, that you need to be able to have that confidence to say, well, if I do do this or if there's something or if it does something I don't trust it with, just like with a relationship, you know, when if I if you have a good friend and then something happens and the relationship breaks down, you don't walk away with this idea that oh they have all of this stuff on me because it's all on the record. Your conversations are off the record and therefore not available for f- future use. Uh, no one walks around recording everything today anyway, um, and so this role of off the record is an, a key part of trust because you know that it's gone and they could say things, but it's just what they say in computing. That's different because everything is essentially on the record. So we need to come up with approaches that allow you to build trust while having things on the record. And that's the next frontier. And when someone comes up with a framework that allows people to go, you know what? I do trust this and I do trust the way it's using data. Then that is that they're going to clean up. Oh yeah, I agree. You know, tying it all together, there's a couple, just a couple more things I want to talk to you because I know we're coming up on our time. But one is, as part of you, you're always trying to bring people together internally, external partners, and and part of what you do is you have a festival called CogX. Can you yep. tell everyone a little bit about what its goal is and where it's at and how often you have it? I think it's annual, obviously, but where? Just give us a little overview of CogX. Yeah, so CogX is a, is a London-based festival of AI. It was created in 2017. The realization was from the founders, Charlie and Tabitha, that one of the real opportunities 
is to bring people together, to bring the AI community together that was otherwise not present. So the conference was created out of this desire to bring people together and have the conversations that matter. And so that was uh, 2017, it was a bootstrap. The whole thing was created in four months, completely insane like startups are. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, and we had 1,500 people turn out. We had 150 speakers. Fast forward to 2018, 6,500 people, 350 speakers. And that was, um, you know, we had multiple stages and we expanded it to be AI and emerging technology. And that session, I actually held seven chatbot sessions on different things, future of chatbots, advanced conversation design. There's a tremendous opportunity to bring people together. You know, we had people from all over the world come uh, to talk and share their thoughts and, and experiences, which was really great. So COGX this year is actually longer. It's more ambitious. The Festival of AI and Emerging Technology from June 8th to 12th of June in London. And the it's going to be more ambitious again. That We're looking at a much bigger venue and we're looking at a much... Uh, more advanced agenda. And for those who are interested in AI for speech and text and digital beings, you know, we, we've got some amazing people already coming. So Mark, Dr. Mark Sager from Soul Machines has already signed up to come and talk about baby X and, and the, his, you know, what I'll call the biomimicry or biological innovation of digital beings. Um, and we have a growing number of people uh, coming. The tremendous excitement for me is <clears throat> this is that it's, again, it's focused on the impact. So we have business conversations, we have plain English conversations, and it's about, um, and it's about, you know, it's making it accessible and it's making it focus on business value. So those two things, to me, make it very attractive for those who may not be that technical, but want to know how it impacts what is going on in their world. So for instance, another example is that Last year, we had an entire stream on ethics, a whole stage on ethics. Now, this, I think, was the first time any of these conferences have focused that much on ethics. And in fact, we have a number of news briefings we do weekly. One is the one that, that my team writes, Speaking Naturally, which I recommend, um, for weekly briefing on, on, on things, AI for speech and text. We also have on ethics. And this is, this is a normal space because people realize that it's not actually clear what is acceptable. It's a new frontier. It is a very much a blank slate. And we'll continue to do that in 2019. So it's a very exciting space. I really like it because uh, you know, many of these conferences tend to fall into two camps. Highly technical research fora, where it's about the latest papers. Or, or um, the other side is they might focus on um, what essentially become trade fairs. So it's about vendors pushing their products. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with those. You learn a lot from those things, and they're fine. Um, we believe and have found really good engagement with this particular forum, which is about plain English business conversations and about real impact. And so we're looking forward to seeing everyone there. And I think we've got a pretty good deal. Um, and I could probably give you code too, if you like, Bob, to make sure that your listeners get a, a special deal today if they buy their tickets um, in the next. I think by the end of this month, we're going to have a special offer. But we, you know, let's figure that out. So in your yeah, show notes, we can talk whatever. offline and put it in the show notes. And uh, if you need yeah. someone to um, live stream from the festival, let me know. Uh, that would be an interesting, would be an interesting scenario where you live stream and you incorporate a social bot at the same time. 
um, you mean from the dialing, festival. So you mean calling in from remotely? Well, no, it, it could be where we actually interview people at the festival all day. Um, oh, right. And, and and live stream it on YouTube or Facebook, um, and to you know to just to, to generate some more buzz and to and to and then also to incorporate that data into maybe a, a chatbot at the same time, so people could interact with the festival as it's going on. That would be an interesting. That would be interesting just to see. I don't even know how you do it, but it's it would be a neat idea. Um, yeah, so that's that's really there's some pretty cool ideas there. Thank you. Yes, there's two things we actually tried. I had an idea of chatbots last year, and we tried a few things. Um, and you know, so that's that. There's a a really natural thing to do in that space. What's interesting in, is that the challenge of coming up with something great. Subsequently, I've actually met someone who's done this thing incredibly well many, 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 many times. So got some thoughts about it. Um, and, you know, the live stream, we, we actually streamed it all live on YouTube last year, and it's all recorded. So every single minute of all of the sessions has been recorded. We haven't had roving cameras. But as I say, the ambition has expanded exponentially. Yeah, that's a, so long, that's a long festival. It's like a rock concert. <laughs> Well, it is. It is, um, and it's over a, you know, an enormous area inside um, in North London. So it's going to be. I think we've got lots of opportunities for how it can be a really engaging experience for people, and and we have really good deals for like you know researchers as well. Um, so there's lots of ways that people can engage, okay. and and those who are listening, if you've got a case study on how AI for speech or text or AI in general has made a business impact. You know, we, we want those stories to be shared so that everyone can learn about what good looks like. And that we're absolutely collecting those stories because that's that's where the real insight that is. That's not like we can or we will or we might, but to we have done and we did these things. Those those are the conversations that, to me, get me most excited because you can learn from those. Because no, then you can say, you can say, this is what we did and this is what we learned and this is what we recommend other people to do. Uh, sometimes it's like, actually, that was a year ago, and now these things have changed, and this is what we now do. That's where the insight comes from. That's where the value comes from in my mind. And that's what I get most excited about when doing about Cogets. Well, is there, I, we, I've had you on much longer than I uh, told you I'd have you on. So is there anything else you want to tell people before we, uh, before we go? Yeah, well, I guess there is one thing. I mean, we, we're, we're classically ambitious in our startup objectives. And so another part that we do that I think is tremendously exciting is my role is to build a network of, of, of community leaders in the AI for speech and text space. I'm one prong, one spoke in the wheel of what we're, our grander vision, which is the expert network. So large organizations have a real problem, which is I don't know how to give advice on a topic. It's just broken. Knowledge management is what some people call it, and it's really hard. So the, the answer has been historically codified or have a knowledge management team, but these just don't work. So the approach that we have, which is a product that we have, is for a large organization to allow people to have, to get real-time advice. And this advice is you ask a question and that question is then matched against expertise in two places. One is their internal network, because that's great, right? Like, you might know a lot of stuff about exactly how we've done things in the past. It's really useful. Equally, it can also be an opportunity to get expertise from the external world. And so part of my job is to connect this network I've got and 
encourage those who've joined to be expert contributors. Now, this is, we know, I mean, this is, this is a lead gen opportunity. So if you are listening and you think, you know what, I, I have expertise in AI and I want to find a new way of connecting to customers by having a conversation around some advice, which then could lead to engagement of some form, then just go to cognitionx.com and sign up on the expert network. And that is um, a way that you can connect. Now, we're in early stages and we've got a couple of customers. Henkel is one that we can talk about. And we have others too, really, really big brands who've really bought into this problem and they want to work with us to solve it. And part of that is the expert network. That is the, the people that are in the community who have some experience and who would like to find new ways of, of getting business. So that's the other piece of the puzzle for us. And that same network, obviously, can participate in CogX and other things, but that's that's the the most exciting for me is the ability to connect people's knowledge to people who need that knowledge in a new way that's been previously very very difficult to access. No, that's very cool. I actually signed up for it. So, oh um, yes, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I saw, to be I, saw part it. I saw it actually. I remember this morning I saw it scroll through. Uh, I saw, oh great, so Bob's signed up, and you know we're a startup, and it's pretty exciting, and you know we're in a frontier exploring new spaces and we personally believe this is an explosive opportunity that's largely untapped uh, and so we're, we're really hoping that this will be something big and so joining now you get that early experience and, you know like linkedin had a big thing about were you the first one of the first millionth members of linkedin <laughs> well if you sign up now you'll you'll be one of the first millionth <laughs> yeah 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 no really well julian i really appreciate your time i know we went over but it's been a great conversation um and i and I appreciate all the information you share with our guest. I mean, our our our, uh, our audience. Well, thanks for having me, Bob, and I appreciate it. And uh, I would love to talk to you more, and we'll keep in contact. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, thanks for having me, and I, I really found it interesting. Thank you. So, see, I wasn't lying. Julian is a mastermind. Um, he is not an evil genius. He is a super smart guy. And it was a fascinating conversation, just the way he was able to, as I said in the beginning, rattle off all of these really cool technologies. And I will have all of them, um, at least I'll try to have all of them in the show notes, and you will be able to, to go out and look them up for, your, for yourself. Don't forget to check out the show notes as well for the Cognition or CogX event that's happening later this year. You really need to go. If you're interested in AI at all, if you're interested in this technology, definitely go see Julian and his team. They are brilliant. Visit his website too. They've got amazing content around AI. If you just want to learn more, or if even if you're a deep nerd like myself, their website has content that spans the spectrum from beginner to expert. It's really exciting. Please check out Cognition X. Go to CogX. And, and, and send him feedback as well as me. Like I'm always looking for comments, concerns, questions, feedback on who I can interview, how the interviews go, what else you'd like to hear about. Uh, that's what I'm here for. I want, I want to know what you want to listen to, what is interesting to you. So reach me on Twitter or Instagram at SocietyWire or email me all your hate mail to bob at SocietyWire.net. Uh, I will be hitting refresh all night until I get an email comment or question or concern. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I look forward to seeing you next week.